Hello and welcome to the CP Podcast. I'm Alex Gordon. There's no fancy intro this week because we have a fantastic, busy show today and there's no time to waste. In it, producer Ashley Murray joins the group Art and Feminism during a Wikipedia edit-a-thon. I talk with our weekly panel about the UPMC labor protests, the fight for marijuana reform, and we even hear an excerpt from Bill O'Driscoll's interview with the ACLU reporter Kurt Guyet. He's the one who broke the uh, Flint water crisis story this summer. All right, so maybe you're thinking stories about poison water, corruption, labor conflict, sick kids, and gender inequality. It's just too lighthearted. It's not serious enough. Whatever happened to stories about parked cars? Well, there are no parked cars today, but we do have Celine Roberts bringing us a great story about Pittsburgh's Lenten fish fries and the best, easiest way to find your new favorite in the city. Okay, let's get started. Wikipedia is a ubiquitous resource in our everyday life, but it holds kind of an odd place in our culture. You know, it's immeasurably helpful, but inherent to the design is imperfection. The ability for anybody and everybody to edit articles on Wikipedia makes it a perpetual work in progress. It might not surprise you that everybody is a bit of a misnomer there. Statistics show that Wikipedia editors are overwhelmingly male and the group Art and Feminism is taking aim at that discrepancy. This past Saturday, 80-plus volunteers gathered for the Art and Feminism Wikipedia Edit-a-thon to give women in the arts their proper due on a forum that is male-centric. Ashley Murray has the story. So if you're new to using Wikipedia, we don't recommend jumping right into creating a new article. Um, instead, try to edit maybe incomplete pages or add some citations. However, we don't want to discourage you. In the Frick Fine Arts Building on the University of Pittsburgh's campus, volunteers prepared to be part of a worldwide movement. Art and feminism is a rhizomatic campaign. Got that? That means there's no hierarchy. And its goal is to improve the coverage of women in the arts on Wikipedia. Here's one of the organizers, Alexandra Oliver. So the event itself is pretty straightforward. People come in, it's drop in, drop out. They, uh, there's a brief tutorial, and then they just get down to editing. And we provide resources um, and give, get people comfortable with the process. And then hopefully, over time, those people will become editors themselves. And then hopefully, over time, as more women become editors, the gender gap will gradually close. Did you hear that? She said gender gap, which is staggering. A survey taken a few years ago found that only 13% of all Wikipedia editors are women. Come to think of it, I've never edited a Wikipedia article. If you're listening to this podcast, raise your hand if you've edited a Wikipedia article. See what I mean? After the tutorial, volunteers got down to business on their laptops in the Frick Fine Arts Library. So what then what would we do? We could research one of these things. We could say, like, it seems like there's no article on Jane Haskell. Right. Is that what that means? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi, my name is Travis Snyder. Um, I'm here to figure out how to edit Wikipedia pages for the art and feminism uh, project here. I've never edited a Wikipedia article before, so looking to get started. And what, um, what made you decide to come here today? Um, well, I work at Carnegie Museum of Art, and... Um, just the whole idea of linked open data and having this information be um, 
more complete and more accessible just interests me in general. So, Feminist, independent curator, and event co-organizer Vicki Clark says when she studied art history, female artists were hardly talked about. She was thrilled with the number of volunteers who showed up. Unfortunately, patriarchy, misogyny, all of this stuff still exists in our world. And so this event gives us instant gratification. We can change information. We can add information. We can put things online in the greatest resource that most people go to first for information. And we can get women's voices and women's achievements on that site. But the day wasn't strictly sitting on your butt in front of your laptop all day. The organizers invited local female artists to speak, like Becca Zela M. Gooney, who's curating the pop-up Black Unicorn Reading Room, which focuses on the literary legacies of black women and queer stories. Um, so yes, there are books in this space that are definitely um, talking about oppression and feminism and um, liberation in different ways. And Sabrine Kadim, who's living at the City of Asylum, Pittsburgh and who talked about how Arabic Wikipedia mirrors the sectarian and religious tension in her home country of Iraq. I feel it's like we, it's a Wikipedia, Arabic Wikipedia. It's like a big, long river, and it's the only river we drink from it, the information and the facts. So when we put, like, just shit inside it, we're going to drink uh, the clear water. And then say, oh, we don't feel healthy. Yes, because we do that, and it's a normal result. For the City Paper's Untitled podcast, I'm Ashley Murray. Altogether, the volunteers edited or improved more than 50 articles on Wikipedia. We've linked to their meetup page on our website. Kurt Guyette, an investigative reporter for the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan's Democracy Watch blog, broke the Flint water crisis story this past summer. Water is classified as hazardous waste if its lead content reaches 5,000 parts per billion. One of the families Guyette interviewed had waters with levels of 13,000 parts per billion. City Paper's Bill O'Driscoll, who writes our weekly environmental column, spoke to Guyette by phone about Flint. Well, I was hired under a grant from the Ford Foundation with the specific intent of investigating and writing about issues uh, related to Michigan's emergency manager law, which is the most extreme receivership law in the United States. Uh, Cities, school districts, counties that are in financial uh, stress can be taken over by the state. The governor appoints a so-called emergency manager who comes in and really has vast, unchecked powers, including usurping the authority of 
locally elected officials because of its effect on taking away democracy, essentially, and replacing it with an austerity-driven autocracy, uh, you know, that, that was my beat. And because Flint was under emergency management, uh, I started going up there and right away became made aware of the problems that uh, people were having with their water, which as a result of an order from one of these emergency managers in April of 2014, the water source was switched from the Detroit regional system, which had been providing clean, safe water for 50 years to Flint uh, in order to save uh, $5 million. Under the control of the emergency manager, the state made the decision to switch to uh, the Flint River, uh, which turned out to be many times more corrosive than the water from the Detroit system. Uh, compounding that problem was the fact that the state inexplicably made the decision not to add corrosion control materials, chemicals to the water. Uh, as all of that, uh, lead began leaching into the water, uh, but that fact did not get disclosed publicly until we disclosed it in July of 2015 when one of the residents that we were working with uh, was given a copy of an internal memo uh, that this EPA employee, Miguel Del Toro, had written, uh, sounding the alarm about the probable public health crisis uh, that was underway. Right, right, right. And and just, just to be clear here, the, the, the pipes were the same, like the, the lead pipes were the ones they were using before when they were getting the, the, the yes. water from Lake Huron, I think it was, right? But yes. it just it just wasn't a problem because the water wasn't corrosive itself. And and, and the, the water is much less corrosive and the required corrosion control was being added. Yeah. Ah, okay. You're okay. right. Uh, Detroit's water comes from uh, Lake Huron. The problem was not the pipes themselves, but the water going through them and uh, the fact that the river water was so corrosive and that, like I said, inexplicably, the state made the decision not to use mandatory corrosion uh, control phosphates or, or what they use, uh, that, that that's what caused this uh, totally preventable uh, man-made uh, crisis from occurring. All right, joining us now to discuss the Flint water crisis and other subjects, we have a panel of our arts editor, Bill O'Driscoll, editor Charlie Deach, multimedia editor Ashley Murray, and staff writer Ryan Dito. Let's continue with Bill. Uh, Bill, what did Guyad have to say about the state of things today in Flint in March of 2016? Yeah, well, after the big outcry last year, the story broke, you know, last summer, fall, um, by November, the uh, uh, the governor of Michigan um, had relented and, and agreed to hook uh, Flint back up to the water supply, the, the Detroit water supply. Um, however, the pipes are so damaged now, uh, Kurt says, that even though you're putting less corrosive water through it and you're adding in the anti-corrosion material, the phosphates, that, that they were not adding in when they were getting their water from the Flint River – um, the pipes are so bad that there's still a lot of lead in the water and you can't really drink it yet. So people are still relying on donated water and they're relying on, um, on bottle, bottled water as well as filters. The other thing that, that Kurt mentioned is that the, the mayor of Flint 
is on this crusade now to get the governor of Michigan to replace all the lead service lines in Flint. Flint's not a it's not a big city, but it's not small either. It's got a hundred thousand people, which gives you some sense of the extent of this crisis. Right, there was a hundred thousand people, many of them children who were drinking this water for a while and exposed to it. Untold toll of lead poisoning um, in this town, and it's probably going to take years to figure out how bad it was. But the mayor of Flint wants the governor now to replace these lead service lines to, you know, thousands of homes. That's a crusade. We'll see if that happened. You know, a governor who didn't really care about <laughs> about the water quality in the first place, maybe it's going to be hard to convince him to do this, but we'll see what happens. So obviously, listening to this Flint story unfold, it's hard not to think about our own city and whether or not this could happen here. Ashley, you attended an Allegheny County Board of Health meeting last week where lead was a big topic. Is lead in the water a risk in Pittsburgh? Yeah, so last week at the meeting, uh, a presentation on lead concerns in Allegheny County took up uh, quite a bit of the meeting. According to the Allegheny County Health Department, uh, the major risk in Allegheny County is not the water, but the lead paint in the older housing stock here. So lead was banned from paint in 1978. In Pennsylvania, 70% of homes were built before 1978. 89% in Allegheny County were built before 1978. And 60% in our county were built before 1950, which is like a threshold that they consider extra sensitive. Right. So Dr. Karen Hacker, who's the head of the Board of Health, she is pushing for mandated child blood screening for lead levels, which is, it's not mandated in Pennsylvania. It's mandated in Maryland, Connecticut, and New Jersey, uh, but not here. So uh, another thing that she's pushing for is increased public health funding so that Allegheny County Health Department could follow up with children who are tested. They see elevated levels of lead in their in their tests and um, they could follow up with them and follow the child and make sure there's lead remediation in the home so that the risk is diminished. Are these new measures directly related to the Flint story or is it just happened to be happening at the same time? That's a good question Alex. I don't know. I know that the health department has been inundated um, as has the Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority um, has been inundated with requests for uh, lead water testing. Mm. Now, on the point of water, um, you know, the health department was saying that this is not the concern, but an investigation that was published by Public Source this past weekend, the reporter found that lead levels in water testing in Pittsburgh um, were just shy of the EPA federal limit for, you know, where they would say, hey, this lead level right. is a risk. So it was uh, 14.7 parts per billion. Uh, found in Pittsburgh water in 2013, the level for the EPA to say, hey, this is a lead problem in your water, is 15 parts per billion. Now turning from local politics to the state, Ryan, you wrote a piece for this week's city paper uh, about the medical marijuana bill and that it could be brought to the floor as early as next week. What would that bill allow? Basically, it would allow for the ingestion of oil extracted from the cannabis plant that then would be uh, administered to patients of uh, basically like a list of about 15 conditions that include cancer, Parkinson's, uh, MS, and uh, a few other kind of really serious um, ailments. What exactly are the arguments of people who are, one, opposed to making 
medical marijuana legal and two who want to put all these like really crazy restrictions on it that would make it effectively a non-law right they would basically almost be keeping it, it illegal could, yeah. when the restrictions are so tough what are they objecting to are they afraid people are going to have unsanctioned fun or what <laughs> that's a great point because that's written in the bill like they're not in the bill but in uh in the bipartisan report that was that was put together it had several passages that strictly said this cannot be used for recreation. You cannot get high recreationally on this marijuana. So you know it's they're really it's it's really their moral objections uh, from from the right, and it really is. And it's not every Republican. Normally, I'll throw them all, put them on the same bag, and chuck them off a bridge. But it's not every Republican. In fact, they have the votes in the House. But these so-called edu- educated legislators are still fighting this, and they're still going by. The fact that it's still a Schedule One narcotic by the federal government, which is which is a huge problem, I, I will admit. And if you don't want medical cannabis or or recreational use of marijuana, that's a big one for you to fall back on, and it's easy for you to to use that in your fight. All right, Charlie. In your Pittsburgh Left column this week, you took a look at the two-year anniversary of the giant UPMC protest that happened downtown. First, do you want to tell us a little bit about that protest, and then do you want to tell us what's been happening since? I could probably start with what's been happening since because it's nothing, and at least that's that's the way I see it. Something came up, a tweet I sent two years ago. I didn't realize it was the two-year anniversary of this massive protest when more than 2,000 people swarmed Grand Street, shut down traffic during rush hour. Um, to They took the fight to UPMC. It was, you know, it was really like the first major, major show of force. Um, they had a crowds of a few hundred at previous um, protests, but it had sort of died down. And then, as I write in the column, about a month before, there were some arrests at the uh, door to UPMC's headquarters. And that just sort of sparked everything. It was, uh, I think it was 10 clergy members who were arrested. Um, and that just sort of sparked outrage, you know, that we hadn't seen in this fight since then. The point of my column is, I think we could be pretty sure that Peduto's not in there fighting for union. I think that SEIU needs to get back involved strongly. I think the workers need to uh, sort of take control back of this union. And I think that people need to start looking at at, at Peduto's uh, involvement in a more critical light. Again, I think he's done everything he can. I think it's time to take it back to the streets. And here we are two years later. I think it's the perfect time to uh, to reignite this. Yeah, um, I was talking to Charlie about this yesterday, and I think it's funny. It kind of shows the... Uh where the fight is for the service workers at UPMC is that there's been these commercials basically on TV and they're those of, I don't know if you guys seen the UPMC commercials, but they're very lighthearted and they have like a light piano kind of playing and stuff. And it's all about like how I had cancer and UPMC was the best hospital for me, which is probably true. But these commercials that just came out are all about the orderlies and the technicians that work at UPMC. And they're all just, it's the glowing praise that these orderlies have where they're like, I just feel so good to go into work and to, uh, you know, really help people and that's and that's why I love working at UPMC and it's like this is all coming at the time when there's supposed to be this like huge massive uprising of like hey you're not treating us fairly you're not letting us unionize you're not paying us um you've had terrible tactics and like squashing our 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 labor movement and um I just think that I think those you know commercials which I feel like have been released in the last couple months really speak to the uh uh, the state of where they're uh, where they're at. Yeah. As Ryan said, there have been multiple complaints to the National Labor Relations Board, you know, claiming that UPMC was trying to, you know, squash the union effort, and they, you know, they were 
they were basically engaging in illegal union busting. And the NLRB found in their favor a couple times in those. And so, you know, I think at this point, you, I'm sure UPMC is claiming victory. And, and you know, I don't even know that if, if the efforts started to ramp back up again, I'm just, I'm not quite sure what kind of impact it, w- it will have because it took them two years to build up the momentum that they had in uh, March of 2014. And I just, I, I just don't know if, uh, I don't know that they can, that they can get enough people to get into this to su- sustain another fight. But, you know, I think it's probably now or never. It's sort of sad to sort of see where it was two years ago and where it is now, which is, which is nowhere, really. Thanks, everybody. You can read Bill's interview with Kurt Guyette, Ryan's story about medical marijuana, and Charlie's column in this week's print edition. For Ashley's health department coverage, check out our blog. It has a silent H. If you want to hear Kurt Guyette speak, he'll be at Point Park University this upcoming Tuesday on March 15th. Check out our podcast page for a link where you can register for the event. This week on Soundbite, Celine visits St. Norbert's Parish in the South Hills neighborhood of Overbrook for a fish fry. There she met with Holland Barmer, the creator of the Lenten Fish Fry Map, which marks more than 250 fish fries in Pittsburgh and is still growing. If you want to know which church has homemade halluski noodles, you're going to want to keep listening. Okay, this is our fish I'm taking out of the box. (laughs) I'm going to put it in the fryers. Dropping it in the fryer. They always say fish is done whenever it floats. It usually takes about five to seven minutes for it to cook. I'm going to throw some french fries in. This week on Soundbite, we're at St. Norbert's Church in Overbrook. And here to join us today is the founder of Pittsburgh Lenten Fish Fry Map, which you can find on Facebook. This is Holland Barmer. Hi. I'm excited to eat some fish fry. We've already been back into the kitchen to talk a little bit to the women and men that are back there cooking, and I've smelled some delicious things. But I suppose we should do business before pleasure. So how did you come to be involved in the map? So uh, I have a really terrible sense of direction, and I also love Pittsburgh. And so sort of bring those two things together, and you get the Pittsburgh Linton fish fry map. So I started in 2012, and I started with a listing from the Pittsburgh Catholic newspaper. And I found myself looking at the listings and thinking, I have no idea where all of these neighborhoods are because I'm not... I'm not a Pittsburgh native. And so I started a Google map, and then a few of my friends and family said, oh, you should share that. And I think that it was thanks to Twitter that it sort of got out there, and now it it had sort of a mind-blowing first day of Lent where a lot of people shared it, and it's got a lot of views. And um, we have now, I think, 252 place marks as of today, which is... uh, pretty huge, so uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the fish fry map this Lent. And where did your original enthusiasm for fish fries come from? Uh, the fish fry is something that is so special about Pittsburgh, and it's almost like a, a manifestation of Pittsburgh in a, 
small, small microcosm of you know churches and organizations, and uh, people are really proud of their fish fries. Um, now maybe I'm I'm helping in some small way channel that love of Pittsburgh for other people too. Did you grow up in a Catholic tradition? No, I, I didn't grow up Catholic. I actually grew up Southern Baptist, which is kind of an interesting combination. Uh, I came to Pittsburgh for grad school at Carnegie Mellon 16 years ago. Um, and while I'm no longer Southern Baptist, I'm Presbyterian now, uh, I, I feel really close to Pittsburgh when I'm at a fish fry. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff about a fish fry that's comfortable to me, uh, having grown up in the church. When I come into a church hall, I smell the familiar smells. You know, there's a lot of nice people around. It's similar furniture to what I grew up with. I have to admit, I went to my very first fish, fish fry last year based on the recommendation of your map. And I had a very circumscribed idea of what it was going to be like to go to a fish fry. And I expected pastel sweater sets and church ladies and older gentlemen and little kids running around. And I got all of that. But what I also got were punk couples with spiked hair and tattoos and chefs that I recognized from local restaurants and people like me who kind of just wandered in totally clueless. And I think that that's what attracted me to this in the first place is the sense of community that is built between all of these people that might not have anything in common. I think you've picked up on something that, that we see uh, in the Facebook page, uh, which is there's a lot of young people who like the fish fry map on Facebook. There's a lot of people with kids commenting things like, where can I find a playground? Or uh, my kid really likes hush puppies. Where can we find hush puppies? And there's also parishioners who have been going to fish fries all their lives and they, they write comments on the map saying, where can I find a new fish fry? And I, I want to kind of get out and explore. And, and there's definitely this adventurous spirit around fish fries that people want to get out there in the community and do something that's community related and, and kind of maybe see inside a church building that they might pass by every day and eat some amazing food made by amazing volunteers who have these great traditions of pierogi making or Italian food making. It sounds like an incredible amount of work to keep this going. Uh, how many volunteers do you have? Well, it's, uh, it's me for now making the map. Um, but I, I sort of consider the fish fry map and everybody who, who sends entries and sends information as, as the we of the fish fry map. Have you been to every fish fry you've listed? No, I haven't been to every fish fry. I'm, I'm working on, I think today is the 36th fish fry, the 36th unique fish fry, um, because I try to accomplish maybe two fish fries every Friday of Lent. Sounds like a real Roman undertaking. How do you do it? How do you keep up? It's just, it's very fun. And it's, it's become sort of an obsession. And there are wonderful people. And, and the people is kind of what makes it. Um, you'll, you'll come in and you see these wonderful posters of the menu that are made by maybe the parish kids. And you see the volunteers who've been doing this for 20 and 30 years collecting the money for for your dinners and you see the ladies at the bake sale and and you see the the ladies and men of the pierogi brigade at at some of these churches can you give me a personal favorite or are you are you going to hold back on a personal favorite 
the map itself doesn't doesn't make recommendations, but I can say uh, there are a few notable fish fries that I've been to and, and uh, that I really enjoy. Um, one of those that, that I was just at last week was the Corpus Christi fish fry in McKeesport. Uh, they, they serve lunch and dinner. One of the notable things about that fish fry is that they have homemade halushki noodles. So the noodles are like super fat and delicious and wonderful. Can anyone get involved? Um, we accept information all lent long, so the main way for people to get involved is to share their information with us, to send us as much as possible, so menu items, um, times, dates, whether there's anything special about your fish fry, address, uh, any, things like that. Thank you so much for coming and answering our fish fry questions, and I hope that you're going to have some more volunteers. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks, Celine. There's still three Fridays left until Easter, so if you want to see the Pittsburgh Lenten fish fry map for yourself, head over to our podcast page at www.pghcitypaper.com. Celine Roberts here with your weekend calendar. Starting Thursday evening, the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater will perform to the gravelly tones of Johnny Cash in their new mixed repertory piece, Man in Black. Expect to see dancers, maybe even with pompadours, moving through pieces inspired by six of Cash's hits. Head to the Kelly Strayhorn Theater for a three-day festival celebrating women in music. This Thursday through Saturday, the Sunstar Festival will feature discussions, parties, screenings, DJ performances, and concerts by artists like Anquinique Wingfield. Friday night, enjoy the Science Center, Sans Children, and plus a few libations. Wiggle Whiskey will be pouring drinks and teaching you a little bit about the science of food while they're at it. And at long last, spring is arriving, and so is the Spring Flower Show at Phipps. This year's exhibit, called Masterpieces in Bloom, brings you into famous paintings like Van Gogh's Starry Night and Edmund Leighton's Lady in a Garden by recreating them using the brilliant blooms of flowers. Well, that's it. I'm keeping it short and sweet this week. I'm Celine Roberts. Get out there this weekend. That does it for Episode 8. Thank you so much for listening. The CP Podcast is produced by Ashley Murray and me, Alex Gordon, with Celine Roberts. Thanks to our panel this week. That's arts editor Bill O'Driscoll, staff reporter Ryan Dito, editor Charlie Deach, and our multimedia editor Ashley Murray. You heard SOS by Zoob, a.k.a. Nathan Zoob, this week, which is also our MP3 Monday track. You can download SOS on our website, pghcitypaper.com, and find his debut solo record, Curriculum Vitae, on Bandcamp. Additional music by me, Alex Gordon. I'd also like to recommend, in the strongest of terms, that you subscribe to the CP Podcast on iTunes. It's expensive and very difficult. Thanks for listening.